Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we will be discussing the Murderbot Diaries and Babylon. Warning, spoilers ahead. Hello, my friend Kat. Hi, Remy. Can I interest you in a bond pitch? (laughs) I would love to hear your bond pitch. Would you mind making me a co-host? I will do that. (laughs) Oh boy, I'm so excited. I've been thinking about this a lot, often during my morning workout and while I'm (laughs) walking to and from work Mm -hmm. and mentally working on my pitch for how I think the next Bond movie franchise should operate. Okay. And I would really like to tell you about that right now. I'm so excited. Okay. I am going to also attempt to screen record this. Okay. So we'll see how this goes. You can see my slides, right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, great. Okay, welcome to my pitch for the new next Bond movie franchise. As you know, Kat, No Time to Die marked the end of the Daniel Craig Bond era. So... This is my pitch about what I think they should do for the opening movie of the next Bond franchise. At this moment in time, we're in early March 2023, so the next Bond hasn't been announced. I don't think anything has been announced about that project. So I, you know, went to the trouble of (laughs) putting my two cents into this PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) Um, and this is how I think they can really liven up the franchise, I guess. So let's see what you think. The tentative <laughs> name for this, for the next Bond film is Wolf Trap. I'm flexible on that though. <laughs> okay. So is it going to let me advance? Yeah. All right. So Kat, the narrative premise that I want the next Bond film to follow is that we need a new Bond that we can root for. Every time there's a new James Bond, there's always some sort of uproar for some reason, Like even if it ends up being like a really good choice. So Exhibit A is when Daniel Craig was cast, who's like roundly considered one of the best Bonds of all time, but like people were upset because he has blonde hair, and they're like, we can't have a blonde Bond. Like, that'll <laughs> never work. People are very rigid about who they think can and can't be Bond. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to win people over. And I think one way you can both make a standout movie that's different from other ones in the franchise and win over audiences at the same time is if you have a specific narrative premise for this first film in the franchise. So... A tired Bond trope is that we always meet the new Bond when he's already, like, really capable. He's always an expert at everything. He's always, you know, unflappable and can't be bested. And that's kind of boring. And I think what would be much more interesting is if we get a new Bond who is new to the role in the reality of the film so that we can watch him actually progress and you know, at least have some type of struggle as he becomes, like, the James Bond. Mm. So the new angle would be that we see James Bond, like, prove themselves as, you know, deserving of the 007 title. Mm. And the way we can illustrate that is by having several people attempt to fill the 007 role um, and defeat the main villain of the film. And our actual, like, James Bond is going to be the, the agent that succeeds. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that at the outset of the movie, we don't actually know who the next James Bond is yet. And that means people have to come and see the movie to actually find out. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so in essence, what sets this one apart is that its general genre is going to be that it's a performance movie because you're going to see someone striving and training and trying to, you know, achieve something rather than just missing all of that and then the narrative begins. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's going to be kind of like Rocky, but for (laughs) MI5. 
And since this is a performance movie, we need to have a specific screenwriter, I think. So I think the screenplay should be by the person who wrote and directed the best performance movie of this century so far, which was Whiplash, and that was written and directed by Damien Chazelle. So he should do the screenplay for the film. And we also need to set our new team for the franchise, meaning we need a new M. They're the leader of MI6. They're like the boss person in charge. This was formerly like the Dame Judy Dench role. I think the new M should be Sean Clifford. Mm. Um, we know she can be commanding and efficient and career focused. Um, and I think she's a believable former agent. I think she'd be really good in charge. Um, you might remember her as Claire in Fleabag. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. So That's a I great think she'd pick. be great as M. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Next on the team is Q, uh, the person that's in charge of all the gadgets and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I think Dev Patel yes. should be Q. I know he's one of the the lead people for the Bond role itself, mm-hmm. but I think he would be a really good Q because he's smart and endearing and works well on a team, as we saw in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. And he's also very dependable. <laughs> so I think he'd be a really good Q. And... A really important part of the every Bond film is the Bond villain. So the villain in this one, he's going to be like really shadowy and mysterious. And I think the subplot that he'll be doing is he's like developing some type of untraceable chemical weapon in the shadows of the underworld. And I think something that will be important about him is that we're not going to see him for a long time. Kind of like in the style of Jaws, where we don't mm-hmm. see the shark for a long time, <laughs> and that makes him more scary. And he's also just a shark. And he's also just a shark. <laughs> um, but we know that he's scheming against MI6 the whole time, and he's um, setting traps for all of the new hopeful 007 agents mm-hmm. to fall into. And that's what gives us like that performance arc of the film mm-hmm. because the Bond villain, tentative name Charles Cross, mm-hmm. he's so good at anticipating each of their next moves that every new agent that fills that 007 role keeps getting taken down mm-hmm. by the villain. He just knocks them all out. And so that means we can have a ton of different people trying out to be 007. So who should play the villain, though? Let's take a, a slight detour to talk about <laughs> some of the good modern Bond villains and what made them good. In essence, my opinion is that what makes a good Bond villain is that we already know that actor and we've seen them being coldly menacing and also suddenly explosively violent in previous roles. So one exhibit is Javier Bardem. We already knew him as Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men, where he was exceptionally menacing. Another example would be Christoph Waltz. He, we already knew him as Hans Landa. He was terrifying as that guy. And similarly, Mads Mikkelsen, we already knew he was scary too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think this pattern of a history of unnervingness means that there can only be one true, really perfect casting for the next great Bond villain. And obviously that would be Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Which, I know he's retired, and I know he would never do this, but this is my fantasy casting, <laughs> so DDL is the ideal in every way. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Daniel Day-Lewis, I just watched um, There Will Be Blood last evening. Did you really? Yeah. Phenomenal. I'm mm-hmm. so pleased you did that. It was very good. And <sighs> he is definitely a good villain character. I loved him. Ugh. He's perfection. Perfection mm-hmm. in every way. Love DDL. <laughs> Imagine having to go up against him. You'd, you'd never make it. No. <laughs> That's why he'd be a great villain. And so, we'd have several people going up against him. 
First would be Lashana Lynch, naturally. She was in No Time to Die as 007 for a time, and she was excellent in that. I thought she did a great job. She was really convincing in all of the action pieces, and she would be like a natural starting point for the Order of 007 hopefuls. Next, I think Jack Loudon should be on the list. Mm -hmm. We know him from Slow Horses. He's already an MI5. May as well do this too. <laughs> he's great because he's represents like kind of a, a more stereotypical Bond choice. Mm -hmm. And we can see how we'd be able to see how Daniel Day-Lewis takes advantage of all of the different weaknesses of these people and how they have some critical flaw that makes it so that they can't be 007. Another option, I think Ross Butler would be good in this lineup. And I also think that no matter how many of the hopefuls we go through and see their demise, I think it would be fascinating if the final 007 person that teams up before our real bond would be someone that they pull out of retirement. Mm -hmm. And this would allow us to see someone like Idris Elba or Tom Hardy, two guys that kind of missed the age cutoff for this current bond, ca bond casting and aren't likely to be casted, but we're like favorites for a time for the next bond. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think in the fantasy, the fiction of this world, one of those two would kind of like come out of retirement to take the 007 role and they would, you know, get some type of crucial piece of information and be the only remaining survivor before our, our new bond is actually put mm -hmm. into the role. And I also have actually like a lot more of uh, potential bonds. <laughs> so Michaela Cole, I think she would be good. Matthew Lewis, he would be a good hopeful. Ben Aldridge, aka Daddy Andrew, <laughs> he could try out. Emma Mackey, she'd be mm -hmm. a good 007. And obviously, uh, Brad Goldstein, he should be in there just for a moment. If he's just 007 for one minute, uh -huh. that would be so phenomenal. <laughs> Imagine. Yes. But essentially, what I'm saying is no matter what combination of these people they go through, none of them are going to make it. And that means we'll have the final 007, which will be our new James Bond for this franchise. And surprise, it's Dev Patel. <laughs> We find out that Q's real name is James Bond. He's been here the whole time. <laughs> and he's seen how everyone else has failed in the role, going mm -hmm. up against the villain. So he's learned a lot more. And that means it's time for him to step into the role, because no one else is around to do it. And I think he'd be great. I love that. Yeah. What a twist. What a twist. <laughs> oh. Congrats, Deb. You're the new 007. <laughs> And that means we need a new Q, which I think should be Aaron Taylor Johnson. He's also, like, at the top of the list for new potential bonds. But I think he'd be a great Q as well. And I think they should actually be really good friends in this franchise. Yeah. <laughs> Not just colleagues, but, like, best buds. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be really fun. <laughs> um, And, oh, also another change... I don't think we should have Bond girls anymore. They're disposable. They're around for like five minutes. They don't really serve much of a purpose. So mm -hmm. Bond girls are out and CIA frenemies are in. <laughs> <laughs> I think there should be a recurring CIA character. I don't have their name yet. I'm just calling them Agent X. Mm -hmm. But I think they should be in every installment. And you never really know if James Bond can trust them or not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are like good. Sometimes they're bad. Mm. But I, that's what makes a good friend of me, you know? You I gotta keep that. on guessing. <laughs> and that means you can cast some non-British people mm -hmm. in this role, because everyone else has had to be a Brit so far. So, I have a lot of options for this one as well. Tessa Thompson, she could be good. Mm. Diego Calva, he could be good. We got Glenn Powell in the mix. Brian Tyree Henry, he was like one of the only good parts of Bullet Train. I think he could really do a good job. Mm. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, she just had an action movie out called Kate, where she, you know, kind of demonstrated her prowess in this genre. I think she could be good. 
and fucking Jacob Elordi, just throw him in the mix too. That guy does everything. Um, also, he's so deceitful looking, <laughs> so he could be great in this role. So the, that's my pitch for like the new version of a Bond girl is just the CIA friend of me. I love that. And finally, the final piece of the puzzle, this was the hardest one for me to figure out, but I think I cracked it. So we need a director for the film, obviously. I think um, this has to be a person who can both operate within a larger franchise and understand the position that one film has to, you know, kind of play in a larger scheme. But also it has to be someone who has a proven track record of directing really good action sequences. And that's why I think Alfonso Cuaron would be the perfect choice, because he directed Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is, you know, widely considered probably the best Harry Potter movie. Mm -hmm. He kind of did like really beneficial things for that franchise as a whole when he took on that project. Mm -hmm. And also he directed children of men, which has perhaps the best modern action sequence of all time in it. So he really fits the bill on both of those essential aspects of what it takes to be a, the director of this project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's it. That's my pitch for wolf trap. Don't you want to see my movie? I do want to see your movie. Desperately. There you we should it. find who we need to email this pitch to. <laughs> I know. E email us at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com. <laughs> who is it? Paramount? Uh, I don't know who owns them anymore. I don't know. Anyway, thanks for coming to my pitch, Kat. I, really, I worked really hard on that PowerPoint. <laughs> I loved it. It was perfect. I've been, like, waiting for this pitch for a couple of weeks now, yeah. and it makes me want to watch James Bond, which I don't usually want to do. I know. I think this could really rejuvenate the franchise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Plus, we both love Dev. We both love Dev. He yeah. rocks. Mm -hmm. I was talking to Scott the other day about um, whether or not cryptids are real, because that's where I was at. And cool. <laughs> I was like, what if I just got really into cryptids? And he was like, why would you do that? And I was like, I don't know. I feel like Bigfoot could be real. And I was like, I don't know. Dev Patel's character on the newsroom really convinced me with his PowerPoint. <laughs> oh, my God. I would love to see that full PowerPoint. Don't you mm -hmm. wish that existed? Maybe it does. Maybe, Maybe Dev does. Patel has it. <laughs> Did you do anything fun this weekend? Um, I hung out with some friends on Friday and then just kind of like stressed about work stuff for the mm. rest of the weekend. So it's been really up and down. Mm. Yeah. I did some cleaning and oh my gosh, I slept until almost noon yesterday and I never do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was just very sleepy after the last week. I don't know. Scott was like, I thought you were dead because <laughs> you're I usually know. up like... 8.30 on the weekends, so. Yeah, it's rough times lately. Mm -hmm. <sighs> well, one of the highlights for my week was the weather's been getting a lot nicer here. And mm -hmm. so I've been doing more of my walks to and from work. And that has opened up a lot of audiobook time for me. Fun. So I downloaded all of the Murderbot Diaries series and have oh, been awesome. listening to that on my walks in and out and stuff. So I've been really enjoying that. Which one are you on? I'm on the fifth one, um, which is Network Effect, I think is what it's called. It's the cool. longest one that she's put out so far. Awesome. So that's your piece of media for this week, right? It is. You want to get into it officially? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Um, so... My topic for the week is The Murderbot Diaries, which is a series of mostly novellas and one novel from the author Martha Wells. Book one is titled All Systems Read, and that was published in 2017, and then the other books have come out subsequently. And right now there are six books in the series with the seventh slated for release in November of this year. So I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, I actually started reading this book 
at your recommendation, Remy, mm-hmm. because I was looking for books to read on my main vacation last summer. And so I got the first book, All Systems Read, and read that while we were like canoeing and uh, hanging out at Cadia. So that was really fun. But I didn't like continue reading the rest of the series at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's been nice to return to that. And it's just like such a cozy sci-fi, which you don't really come across very often. Um, like, I think that this is a book series that I'll like come back to again, just because I find it like very enjoyable to read and like not stressful at all. So I guess I will just explain the premise of the first book and not really get into too much of like what happens in the subsequent books, but just kind of explain the general format of the book and stuff like that. Okay. So in the world of this book, Murderbot is our main character. That's what they refer to themselves. And they are a construct of like a organic robot hybrid that's kind of like a humanoid format, but very like generic. They're, all of their features are like programs and they're kind of like an industry standard robot. They all kind of look the same. Yeah, they're like one of many of this type of robot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so they act as sec units and sec units are a robot based security system that this organization that is only referred to as the company sends out with teams that are going on like scouting and research missions to different planets that haven't been like explored. And so the sec units are all like programmed. They're all under company control and the control of the teams that they're with. And so our main character, Murderbot, is dispatched with a team from Preservation Ox, and the team is led by a researcher named Dr. Mensa. And one of the twists that you find out in the first chapter is that this security robot has hacked its... Um, programs that kind of require it to follow orders and um, obey the team that they're kind of dispatched with. And so it like kind of refers to itself being a rogue sec unit. So Murderbot is kind of just flying under the radar. Its reasons for hacking its own software isn't so that it can like betray the team or the company or anything like that. Mostly what it wants to do is just watch media in the cargo area while they travel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all. that's like one of the main reasons that they like hacked their own software. Um, and Murderbot is like a little bit skeptical of this human crew. Obviously, they're like on a job. So they're kind of just working their day job in the background and spending a lot of their time watching TV shows and serials and stuff like that. But quickly on this mission, Murderbot realizes that like this team seems a little bit different. They are kind of treating them with like a lot more respect and like kind of involving the main character in like strategic discussions and things like that. Um, so Murderbot starts to kind of like form a bond with the crew and like form this kind of relationship with them. And so the team starts experiencing sabotage from another team on the planet. There's like some corporate espionage that's happening on the planet where um, there's kind of a, a team that has paid off the company to kind of obscure the other teams from realizing it's even on the planet and they are doing some shady things behind the scenes. And so Murderbot kind of leads the charge in addressing the situation and um, starts to like really care for the humans that it's working with. Yeah. And that's kind of um, unexpected for Murderbot, right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't really have much positive regard for humans at the beginning, if Mm -hmm. I remember correctly. But this particular crew, I think they like hail from a planet or a culture where humanoid like mechanic organisms have human rights or Mm -hmm. something akin to that, right? So it like really matches up with the way they end up treating Murderbot as like not some sort of like lifeless employee drone, but more like a, a real member of the team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the setup on their planet, which is 
um, called preservation. I think the setup is that constructs can have like autonomy and right. they can be like almost adopted and sponsored by another person who technically is their guardian and mm. watches over them. But yeah. so I agree. They like definitely regard the like constructs very differently than most humans that Murderbot has interacted with to this point. Yeah. And I think that adds a lot of good narrative tension because mm -hmm. as Murderbot grows like more positive regard towards this crew, there's internal conflict because mm -hmm. they don't want to be found out that they have, you know, like circumvented the governors on their system and yeah. they have free will. So mm -hmm. that's like a, they have to ride a very fine line between perhaps forming these relationships, but also still appearing as though there's still like standard order. Yeah. And I like the tension also that gets um, built up when eventually the team realizes that they've hacked their system yeah. and there's like almost a distrust there, but then they're like, oh, well, it's still been following all of the orders and um, <laughs> protecting us. So if it didn't have to, I guess we can trust that it actually wants to, um, mm -hmm. which I really liked. Yeah. I think it adds a lot of complexity into the relationships. Oh, definitely. But yeah, as I kind of mentioned, I found this series really comfortable to read and just like really enjoyable. Um, and it definitely exceeded my expectations going into it because I enjoy sci-fi, but sometimes I have a really hard time like getting into it because there's so much exposition being dumped on you definitely. and like science fiction and fantasy worlds, they have a lot of world building that needs to be done in in the exposition. And so like the kind of clunkiness of that can really like ruin my momentum going into a book. And so I think that one thing that really helps it, especially in that first book, is just the overall length is so short that you can't really have like a 50 page exposition dump. You yeah. kind of have to learn everything as you go. And mm -hmm. I really liked that kind of structure to the story. I think that Martha Wells really did a good job incorporating little bits of exposition as you go. So I really enjoyed that. And I think that this book has really strong characters that have been written. Like they're all really interesting and complex. And especially Murderbot is a character that like I found really lovable and relatable. Um, Same. like I mentioned, they like binge watch TV shows and they have a favorite that they always like come back to, which I can really <laughs> relate to. I think that that was really cute. Um, and I also really liked watching Murderbot get to like grow and develop as a character throughout the books because now that they like are a free agent, they are learning a lot of things about different relationships and, um, they're learning a lot about themselves through the relationships that they have across the series. They kind of like interact with multiple different groups, multiple different like constructs and robots and things yeah. like that. And, I think that each new interaction teaches Murderbot a lot about the way they want to navigate the world and kind of what works for them and what doesn't. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. And I also really liked that the author decided to make this character ungendered. And I think that the way that that's incorporated was really um, like natural and not clunky at all, because I've read other books like Ancillary Justice where the characters or like the main character is an ungendered character, but like constantly throughout the book, it's like making a narrative about other people and trying to figure out what their gender is based on that species. And I think that that can be very clunky and confusing when you're reading something like that. But in this series, it's just like very well incorporated. And I also think that it allows people to see a lot more of themselves within the character, just because regardless of your gender, you can just like see aspects of yourself in Murderbot. And I think that mm -hmm. that's really nice and something that can be inhibited by having a gendered character. 
But I thought it was like really artfully incorporated and, and a very, very natural in like the, in the novel itself. Yeah. I think it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I also found Murderbot really relatable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really neat accomplishment for mm-hmm. Martha Wells because they're obviously like, um, a non-human main character mm-hmm. and they're still the most relatable character out yeah. of like anyone in the book essentially. Mm-hmm. And I also think that's just like a really cool narrative framing device having the entire story told from this more objective yeah. non-human point of view and that makes all the commentary on human behavior much like it's much more entertaining and enjoyable because it's yeah. like from this very frank outside perspective mm-hmm. and I particularly enjoyed that element I thought that was really well done yeah um I also found like the range of relationships that Murderbot has like really interesting. I really like how Murderbot interacts with art from book two. That Dude, was like I was my gonna favorite. Say, art's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I love art. <laughs> that was like my favorite. I think that's my favorite book so far, just because mm-hmm. of that relationship. And I just think that it also helped explain a lot of like I I don't know like all of the interesting like bot mental processes that can happen like when Mm -hmm. art can go into a system and control a bot pilot or or things like that i just found really interesting i just really liked seeing two robot things yeah form a friendship with one another because they're like both quite logical and there are more direct conversations than humans would have like about what friendship is and why you can trust each other and i just thought the directness of those those conversations was really funny to listen to yeah but they're also still like really distinct personalities Mm -hmm. from one another which is also for sure yeah incredible stuff (laughs) yeah um another one of my favorite interactions that Murderbot has is in book 3 with Mickey. I think that their relationship oh, is really Mickey. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um and I also liked that overall this series kind of addresses multiple ways in which humans interact with like the robot constructs that they mm-hmm. have around them because there's like humans that are distrustful of the robots. There's humans that are just kind of displaying indifference towards constructs and robots. Like they are pretending they're not even there. But then there's also this like almost infantilizing um, behavior towards the robots. And Mm -hmm. you get to see a lot of that being processed with like Mickey and uh, how Murderbot refers to Mickey as like a a pet robot um yeah and then there there are humans that like actually respect the the robots and constructs and i think that that's a really nice range um especially i mean through all of those interactions you're also getting murderbots commentary about like humanity and humans and the way that they interact with these things that they view as lesser than them mm-hmm. I really thought that this book had like a very wholesome energy to it. I love some of the things that Murderbot says because Murderbot tries very hard not to like show emotion is very uncomfortable by emotion and showing it. Um, but like sometimes you'll, sometimes they will say like, my humans or like they always end up helping anyone that they run into and they're very mm-hmm. like, caring and sweet. Yeah, I guess like the one of the last notes I have is that I really liked the character of Mensa who kind of recurs throughout the series. Um I really like her interactions with Murderbot specifically. I think that she is one of the first people to like display that level of respect to Murderbot and has like a a very good awareness of Murderbot's like comfort in certain situations. Yeah. Um, like in the first book, Mensa is like during one of the conversations, she is like intentionally avoiding eye contact because she knows that that will make Murderbot more comfortable if like they're not feeling as vulnerable. Um, 
And she also like advocates uh, for for a murder bot to like not have to interact with the rest of the crew more than they want to. Like if anyone's pushing murder bot for more information, she like stands up for them. But yeah, I just thought that she was really cool and like a very strong person while also showing a lot of compassion because I think that sometimes we think that to be a leader, you have to sacrifice some of your compassion to be a better leader. But I don't think that's true. And I think that that's illustrated in Mensa's disposition. But yeah, I just thought that it's been a really good series so far. And it's just a really fun experience to explore this world and hear everything Murderbot is like thinking all the time. And Mm -hmm. it's very funny and sweet. And I also think that the person who does the narration his name is Kevin R. Free. He does a really great job with the Murderbot voice and just like the the narration of that is really good. So if you have the opportunity to listen to it on audiobook, I highly recommend that. Yeah, I completely agree. I was going to point that out if you didn't, that the audiobooks are really well done. Yeah. And yeah, I agree that narrator is, is really, does excellent work mm-hmm. with the character and they're really enjoyable yeah i find them soothing to fall asleep to as oh well, yeah in a good way i can imagine yeah <laughs> that's all i got awesome what a good series yeah i'm really glad that you suggested that to me i'm not sure if i would have picked it up without your recommendation yeah no problem and scott liked it too right yeah scott liked it cool yeah it's been a minute since i read those but i wouldn't mind revisiting them Yeah. All right. Well, shall I get into my piece of media for the week? Yes. I'm really excited to hear about this. Cool. So my favorite piece of media this week is the 2022 film Babylon. Uh, This film is written and directed by Damien Chazelle, and it stars Diego Calva, Margot Robbie, and Brad Pitt. And I have, I already have kind of a complicated relationship with this film, in that it's kind of the reason why I decided to really like buckle down and stop making excuses and get to the theater this year in 2023, because I really regret not going to see this one in theaters. And I find that with a lot of late December releases, I always end up dropping the ball on those because of like holiday travel or moving or all the crazy stuff that's been going on the past couple of winters. Mm with like the Omicron wave and all of those things. And then in the new year, I regret like not seeing Licorice Pizza or Babylon Mm -hmm. or something that, you know, would really benefit from a theatrical experience. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then I feel bad that I didn't support those films because it's like, this is the, these are the type of films that I want to be made and I want to support them. And I just really beat myself up when I dropped Mm. the ball with them. So this is the beginning of like my Damien Chazelle apology tour. (laughs) Sorry, Damien. (laughs) I purchased it on VOD. I hope that (laughs) counts for something. (laughs) But yeah, I want to talk about Babylon and the experience of watching it and everything that I loved about it because it's been a very divisive film. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you've heard about it, but people have a a lot of thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just going to tell you mine. (laughs) I'm excited. So this is Damien Chazelle's fourth like major feature film and I hold him in like really positive regard. He made Whiplash mm-hmm. um and La La Land and First Man and has had, you know, resounding success with all of those projects mm-hmm. and is a very capable writer and director and I've enjoyed every single thing that he has done that I've seen, um, which is really a feat because you know, Kat, that I'm very much not a, like a musical person. Yeah. I don't enjoy a musical, and La La Land is a full-on musical, mm-hmm. and I like really enjoyed it. <laughs> oh. Which is huge for me. Yeah, that's very different. Yeah, it's totally took me by surprise, hmm. and... Yeah, I mean, that's how good Damien Chazelle is. (laughs) And so 
when I heard this movie was coming out, it's like a, a sprawling odyssey in old Hollywood. Um, I was like, wow, this is going to be like a massive project. I uh-huh. can't wait to see it. Like just based on the trailers, I was like, this looks like a lot going on. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm interested to see what it's actually about. So the general plot is that, like I said, it's kind of a sprawling odyssey that's following three main characters. So you have Manny Torres. He's the real main character. Mm-hmm. He's played by Diego Calva. And uh, you meet him at the beginning of the movie. And you see him interacting with Nellie Leroy. She's played by Margot Robbie. Mm-hmm. And they're both like young, up-and-coming people. Um, Nellie wants to be an actress and Manny wants to be like in production or direction, but they're both like nobodies at the start of the film. And it begins uh, sometime in the 1920s. I kind of lost track of the timeline, but Mm -hmm. the film is tracking the transition from silent film to films with sound in old Hollywood and just kind of the, the revolution that that caused in the film industry at large and the ripple effects for individual people and larger groups of people and the treatment of film crews and all kinds of things. It explores that transition from many different angles. And so you have those two like young and ambitious characters that you meet at the beginning of the film. And you also meet the third main character, Jack Conrad. He's played by Brad Pitt and he's already like a really established actor. He's like the most sought after successful actor in silent film era Hollywood at the start of the film. Mm -hmm. So you're plotting the trajectory of these three people as everyone as a group is navigating this transition to sound. And you see like all of the different problems that that transition poses from like a technical aspect to the personal aspect, like some people, like it, it just completely changed the game. Like imagine being a performer who no one ever heard your voice and all of your acting was visual mm-hmm. to having to like actually deliver lines mm-hmm. and sound a certain way and do things completely differently. Um, Jack Conrad's character really struggles with that transition. And so a lot of his arc is kind of a downfall arc mm-hmm. um, as you're watching Manny and Nelly sort of ascend to success and fame. Mm. So there's a lot of different trajectories that you're plotting at the same time, which is one of the reasons why it's a very sprawling movie. But at any given time, you're kind of checking in with one of those three and seeing what's going on with them. And sometimes they're intersecting, sometimes they're not. But basically, the movie illustrates a lot of these transitions through the struggles that those three main characters are going through and the struggles of some tertiary characters as well. But it does so in a, like a little bit of a, a disjointed manner at times, <laughs> I guess you could say. Um, so the first big set piece of the film, it's this massive industry party where you meet all of the main characters and it kind of gives you a backdrop for the tone of the film at large in that a lot of it is a commentary on the excess and the spectacle and the way people are kind of treated as disposable Mm. in Hollywood. And so you're primed to receive that sort of commentary about like the machine of Hollywood. And then you kind of get a sense of how that machine is changing each of our three main characters. And there is like no, no amount of spectacle is spared. Like it is overwhelming and chaotic and really imaginative. And I cannot imagine what a nightmare their production was (laughs) to like get all of these things to be happening at once. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, it's really meta, but for a lot of the set pieces, I was like, holy shit, this must have been so hard to make. And literally, like, the story I'm watching on the screen is people being like, holy shit, this is so hard to make. (laughs) And so you never kind of escape that appreciation for what you're seeing because Mm -hmm. you're constantly being reminded of, like, how much sacrifice and dedication all of these like crews and production teams had to have to like work in these conditions at Mm -hmm. that time and who like still have to now but obviously it was a bit more like unregulated back then Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and so a lot of the like huge 
loud and chaotic and like party centric aspects of the film just kind of underscore with like satire, like the ridiculous nature of Hollywood and entertainment mm-hmm. at large and uh, just how crazy <laughs> that entire industry is. But despite that, it has the classic Damien Chazelle through line of watching people, watching characters with a huge amount of ambition and a mm-hmm. huge amount of dedication, um, particularly Manny and Nelly at the beginning of the film. They are like dead set on trying to accomplish these dreams and these goals. Mm-hmm. And that's a storyline that I'm interested in every single time. And I love watching them throw themselves into every like small opportunity that they get. So at this initial like massive party that we witness, they each yield like a small opportunity mm-hmm. from their behavior there. And you see them grow those opportunities into larger things mm-hmm. through like sheer force of will. And it's, it's great to watch. I love it. I think Manny is an, a great character. He was my favorite one for sure. Mm-hmm. And he is like <laughs> so determined and so competent in such stressful situations. He's mm-hmm. like the pinnacle of the active problem solver. Mm-hmm. And I find that each time I rewatch it, I like the movie more because I know what's going to happen and I know I can relax mm-hmm. when like really stressful things are happening to Manny or to Nelly mm-hmm. or someone else. And that has made it like much more enjoyable for mm-hmm. me <laughs> upon rewatch because I, I don't have to be so stressed out that like Manny is trying to get this camera mm-hmm. and it's like, I can kind of sit back and appreciate more like watching these people hustle mm-hmm. and like being happy for them the more and more they succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's like a very classic Damien Chazelle. People striving for a dream is his, mm-hmm. like, is his sweet spot. And mm-hmm. I love that. Let's see. So some other key highlights that I love about Babylon are obviously Justin Hurwitz's score. He is a longtime collaborator with Damien Chazelle. They were college roommates and I'm pretty sure, I'm not like an expert, but I think Justin Hurwitz might be like a fucking genius. He is, every score he's done has been incredible. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he does it. It's every score for all of these films that he's done with Damien have been so amazing, but so tonally resonant with each individual film. And just like, really fucking good. And I think they elevate each of those films extremely. Like, I think he's, like, people, you know, talk about him. They're Obviously, everyone knows he's good, but he should be a household name. Like, mm-hmm. he's so good. I can't believe it. He's an asset to each of these films. And his score for this is, you know, exceptional as usual. Mm-hmm. It's jazz-centric, which is another mm-hmm. recurring motif of their work together. And it's great. Like, I listen to it on my own time outside of <laughs> the film. So that means it's really special. <laughs> um, something else I loved about the film is just the scale and the scope and the ambition of mm-hmm. this production is massive. It's a huge swing, and I'm so glad they took that swing because it's it like takes serious balls to make this movie, mm-hmm. and it's not a boring movie. I know it's divisive. I know it wasn't everyone's cup of tea, but they really fucking went for it, and that deserves credit Mm -hmm. for sure and it's like no movie i've ever seen it's massive and like i already mentioned the production and how sprawling and incredible it was but something i really want to emphasize is that they took a tremendous amount of care to make it as like practical of a production as possible. So Mm. they have like huge crowd scenes with like 500, 600 extras and they're all real people extras. Like everything, almost everything was done practically. Like a very small amount was post-production, you know, visual effects. They Mm. did so much practical work for like massive like battle scenes 
that are like movie scenes being filmed and you're also seeing like the production crew within the film mm-hmm. capturing <laughs> these massive group shots and I think that was probably my favorite sequence of the entire film was Nellie and Manny's first day on set mm-hmm. and the like battle scenes being filmed and just watching everything surrounding those productions be so just insane and dangerous and ambitious and the energy was electric. Mm -hmm. I think the entire first hour of this film is incredible, but that does kind of lead into one drawback, which is it's an over three hour long film. So there's a lot happening for a long time. And I think that's kind of why some people got a little overwhelmed with the experience as mm-hmm. a whole because it's like a relentless a relentless carousel of visual and sonic information mm-hmm. and if you're on board for that then it's it's definitely like a really exciting ride something that definitely kept me on board especially during the first hour was some of the most like surprising and amazing and energizing cameos that I've ever seen. I don't really shout out cameos that much because mm-hmm. it's got to be like a really special one to, mm-hmm. to catch my attention. Like there's a, a notable one in the Fablemans that we can cover it on another time, but mm-hmm. it's got to be someone that I'm either like, wow, I can't believe they thought of that casting that cool person in this cool role. There was like 10 of them in Babylon. Mm-hmm. Um, some... Some key ones that I liked. Flea, he's in like three or four scenes in this movie. And it took me like three scenes to recognize him because <laughs> he, he did such a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, um, like a really high level movie producer and he, he kills it. He does great. Albert Hammond Jr., the guitarist for the strokes has one line in the party sequence in the opening of the film. And I didn't know it was him until I was like scrolling through the credits today. Mm. And I was like, what a fucking flex (laughs) that Albert Hammond Jr. has one line in your movie. Like that's incredible stuff. I love that. Um, Rory Scovel, one of the best stand-up comedians out there and actors. He's a great actor too. Mm. He plays this small tertiary character called the Count. He's like the guy that provides like all the uppers mm-hmm. to the film crews and stuff. That guy is firing on all cylinders. <laughs> He's incredible in this movie. Rory absolutely kills it as the Count. He's fucking his energy of his character is so good. He steals Every scene that he's in, in my opinion, I really enjoyed him in this movie. But I have to say, if I had to pick one cameo that was just an absolute home run, it is Spike Jones as the German film director of the movie that has the huge battle scenes. Mm-hmm. His performance is so over the top. It's amazing. <laughs> he's screaming every single line. He looks insane. <laughs> He's just so good. And I didn't know it was even, I didn't even recognize him until my second watch. And I was like, oh my God, that's Spike Jones. Holy shit, this is incredible. <laughs> and then everything he said became like the funniest thing I've ever heard because it was him. <laughs> and I just loved that. Um, I absolutely loved his inclusion. So, I mean, and that's like, that's, that's just four out of a hundred mm-hmm. great cameos. <laughs> It's amazing stuff. But yeah, so basically throughout all of these different exploits and like terrible ideas and terrible decisions that a lot of the characters make throughout the course of the film, it really illustrates to you like how the film industry has no loyalty to anyone. Even if you're like the biggest star in the world for one moment, mm-hmm. you could be nothing the next day and the, they only have loyalty to the box office. Mm-hmm. So watching people rise and fall is a major part of the film. And just it is all over top of this constant undercurrent that's showing like how people, how humans are generally depraved <laughs> and how um, a lot of old Hollywood stuff chose to hide that part of humanity and make it all, you know, like 
singing in the rain, like everyone's mm-hmm. awesome. And not that that's a bad film or anything, but it certainly isn't exploring like the depths of depravity of mm-hmm. human nature. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it shows that like stark contrast between the Hollywood facade and the roiling underbelly of just fucked up shit that's going on in the real world mm-hmm. in the exact same location. So, yeah, I mean, there's a whole descent into hell sequence that is completely unhinged. <laughs> and um, oh, there's some rat actors that are so good. I Aww. love them. Uh, their, their part's really brief, but I really enjoyed that they used a real rat. That's so or cool. real rats and not a computer rat. I love that. Love that. But yeah, like I said, there's like a couple caveats I have where it's very long. They probably Mm -hmm. could have cut a couple of lesser important sequences. Mm -hmm. And three main characters is like a lot of main character time. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I'm not a director. I'm not Damien Chazelle. Like he's obviously knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. But if someone said like, you have to pick one character for this film to be about, I would pick Manny Torres. Mm -hmm. Like he's, I think it could have been, you know, an equally great movie if it focused more on him and a little bit less on Nellie and Jack Conrad Mm -hmm. and could have, you know, conveyed the same information but if you're if you're feeling maximalist then this is definitely definitely the experience for you Mm. um however one other caveat is there's like a certain amount of triangle of sadness action happening Uh, where there's like a lot of gross stuff that is there (laughs) to like illustrate that depravity element Mm -hmm. that i was talking about and it's like really over the top it's clearly you know meant for like a a satirical humorous element Mm -hmm. to make a a certain point in a given situation but that is kind of like sometimes i feel like it detracts from the overall gravity of the message if Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah and perhaps um i think that's another reason why some people criticized it as lacking subtlety, which mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really think they were trying to be subtle per yeah. se, but I see where people are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think for that reason and for the just the grandness of so many different massive spectacles in the film, I think sometimes all of those things together make it a little difficult to dissect the commentary about the ridiculous nature of spectacle uh, and separate that from the actual spectacle itself. Mm -hmm. I think that the aim of the project was, you know, meritous, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's just so much to sort through that making that dissociation can be just a little more challenging than uh, a shorter film, I suppose. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And also, a lot of the commentary around this film has pointed out how it was really underserved by the promotional campaign, like the trailer and the, um, like the TikTok ads for it and stuff like that, and how they were like really tonally confusing. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that is true, at least in my experience. Like when I saw the trailer... I found it extremely tonally confusing, and I think that did contribute in a major way to me, like, not making the time to go see it Mm -hmm. when it was in theaters. Not that that's an excuse, but I wish its rollout had been a little better and a little more focused. Um, I watched a really good video about that today on YouTube called The Awful Marketing of Babylon Mm. by Come Watch TV, and... They had like a, an interesting analysis on how ill-fitting the the campaign was. So I think it's a shame that it underperformed in some ways at the box office because it's such an ambitious project, mm-hmm. and I don't want that to like dissuade other people from having really like ambitious projects. Mm-hmm. And I hope that with you know, time and with retrospect, people will get on board more and really admire this film for what it is, even Mm -hmm. if they don't love 100% of it. Like, I don't love 100% of it, but as a whole, it's, (laughs) it's like amazing. Mm -hmm. It's an an amazing film to watch. And I hope people aren't discouraged from it. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that you, it seems like you either love it or hate it. And if you love it like me, then uh, that's got to count for something. Like there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. that really, really love it. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like a like middle of the road crowd pleasing film for it to be a success. It can be something that half of people really, really like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think those are all my major highlights. Yeah, and then I just had one final note because um, I remembered that I wanted to start giving um, what's it called? Oh, like a, a double feature recommendation uh, as a way to illustrate a spiritually similar film. I think this would be a great double feature with Boogie Nights because they are both kind of like equally sprawling mm-hmm. in time and just the sheer number of characters that you are focusing on. And Mm -hmm. obviously they're both about groups of people that are trying to make it in the film industry. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them kind of like get caught in the gears of that machine. And you see how that impacts them over the course of several years. Um, So yeah, I think in a lot of ways it has at least some spiritual connections with Boogie Nights. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I like that. I might start thinking about similar suggestions in the future. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I bet it would have been really cool to see it in the theater, though, because it is like such a spectacle. It would have been cool to see that on the big screen. Absolutely. Maybe one day there'll be a, you know, rescreening. Yeah. Do you want to get us started on our friend diagram, Remy? Sure. So... What did these two things have in common? One of the biggest things I think they have in common is that they both offer a really frank perspective on human nature and human mm-hmm. behavior. So Murderbot has this really objective point of view mm-hmm. as a um, as a sec unit and has like really interesting commentary on the human behavior they observe. And in a completely different way, but Babylon also shows you like a really frank perspective on on human behavior by showing kind of like a satirical and humorous but unflinching glimpse into people being awful, if that makes sense. Yeah, Um, kind of in the same thread as what you just said. I think more specifically, they both have commentary about people being treated as like disposable, Mm -hmm. disposable people. (laughs) Um, And so I thought that that was a really interesting parallel. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think they both had very well-rounded and full world building. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned how adeptly Martha Wells builds out this like galaxy of not a galaxy like even more than that like it just like huge interplanetary world Mm -hmm. with different customs and social mores and different types of organisms Mm -hmm. and different types of constructs and how they're all different but how they interact with each other and just did a really great job of building that huge world and the scope of Babylon is Mm -hmm. a massive and very detailed world where you just get so much information about all these different like film productions coexisting on the same lot and the insane amount of entropy that's happening Mm -hmm. as this very, very detailed world is just rushing toward advancements in film and Mm -hmm. you just get to this huge sprawling picture of this time and this place that includes an insane number of people and elements. Yeah. One of the other things I wrote down, we usually don't share like contrasts, but mm-hmm. I also wrote down one area that I thought there was like a really interesting contrast. Um, so you talked about how Babylon is about like the ambition of the main characters. Yes. Um, I would say that Murderbot is almost the exact opposite of that because Murderbot is not a very ambitious character. And a lot of the book is about them kind of figuring out what they want to do with their newfound freedom and mm-hmm. um, like what their purpose is. And I think that that's, I, I just thought that those were like directly opposite. And I thought mm-hmm. that was cool. Yeah. But I also think um, there's a commonality between the main characters of Murderbot and Manny Torres Mm -hmm. in that they're both very resourceful and they're really good problem solvers. 
So you talked about how uh, Murderbot does a good job of kind of keeping things from getting worse when, like, shit hits the fan, mm-hmm. essentially. And Manny Torres, man, that guy, he's a good problem solver. <laughs> He'll get the job done no matter what it takes. And mm-hmm. I love watching him work. So, <laughs> yeah, both great resourceful characters. Yeah, that's a good one. I wrote down that both of them have about a three-hour runtime, the audiobooks <laughs> and this film. Yeah. I would love to see the Murderbot Diaries as, like, a television show. I think that would be so good. Yeah. That would be a good, like, anthology. Not anthology. But, yeah, like, a, lo- a longer series. That would yeah. be good. I think it would be great. And I love that, like, each of the stories is, like, so suited to, like, a discrete season. Like, each book is, like, telling a slightly different story in a slightly different setting lend itself well to a television series i think yeah cool well go check out all systems red go check out babylon just give it a go yeah you might like it for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice and we'll see you back here same place next week. Bye for now.